in prayer. Lord, we love you. You are our strength. Lord, you're all glorious. You're all powerful. You're all knowing. You're all wise. You're all gracious. You're all sufficient. Lord, you are the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Lord, all glory, honor, and power belong to you. And Lord, you alone are worthy to be praised because you created all things and because of your will and for your sake they were created. Father, when we look upon this beautiful day that you've given us, all we can say is thank you because you created it. Lord, you created all things. You created beauty. Beauty belongs to you. Beauty is not in the eyes of the beholder. Lord, beauty belongs to you. You are the creator and author of all that is beautiful, all that is glorious. And we look to you this morning as our creator. Lord, that which you create, you sustain. That which you create, you uphold. That what you create, Lord, you provide for. And Lord, in your sovereign will and your sovereign providence, you have provided for all creation. You have provided for us as, as man, though we are sinners, though we are fallen, though we don't always look to you and acknowledge you, Lord, you still provide for us. Lord, also all knowledge belongs to you. All wisdom originates with you. Lord, no one can ever give you direction or counsel. No one can ever tell you what to do or give you instructions or make suggestions to you. Lord, no one has ever instructed you in the way of understanding. Because, Lord, humanity is like a drop from a bucket. Humanity is like a speck of dust on the scales. Humanity, Lord, is like a blip, a small blip on a radar. Lord, all the nations are nothing before you, as your word says. All nations are nothing before you, less than nothing, meaningless. No one and no thing compares to you. Lord, in spite of this, you hold our eternal souls securely in your loving hand. And Lord, you do this because you're greater than all of our enemies of the righteous combined. And Lord, because of that, no one can ever snatch us away from the place of tender care and safekeeping. Jesus said in John 10 and 29, that no one can snatch us out of your hand, Lord. Not even the suffering that we go through. Not even the insults of people. Not even the hardest trials that we endure in life. Nothing, Lord, can snatch us from your sovereign hand of holding us and keeping us. Lord, you are infinitely more able to guard us than we are to guard ourselves. Lord, we are in your custody. We belong to you. We are your people. Those of us 
who are saved, those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, Lord. We're committed to your custody and you take care of us. Lord, the truth is we did nothing to earn our salvation that you graciously provided for us. And there's nothing that we could ever do to forfeit that salvation. Because, Lord, we are kept by your power. Through faith unto salvation. Which has already been revealed in the last day. Lord, you hold us up with strength. And you make our way blameless. Lord, you are the only wise God and Savior. You are the one who keeps us from falling. And Lord, the great thing is that one day you will present us faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy. Your word tells us in Jude 24 that you will present us blameless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy and that all glory and majesty, dominion and power therefore belong to you alone both now and forever. And Lord, these truths this morning remind us of the helplessness that we have, that we are helpless debtors to your loving kindness and your rich grace. Lord, I pray this morning that you guard our hearts from idols. And Lord, give us the will and energy to flee from all forms of idolatry. Because, Lord, our hearts are idol factories. Lord, our worries can become idols. The things that we worry about perpetually can become idols. And Lord, when it becomes an idol, we turn from looking to you to looking toward our idols. The very source of pain, we turn into an idol and it would only bring more pain and misery to us. So Lord, guard our hearts from idols. Help us to flee from idolatry. And Lord, we know that some do desert the grace of Christ for a different gospel. We know that there are some who apostatize and depart from the faith, Lord, but they were never true believers in the first place. We know that there are false disciples who went out from us, though they were not really of us, because as 1 John 2, and 2 says, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Father, I pray that you call them back to the faith we pray Lord for unbelieving family members unbelieving loved ones unbelieving co-workers those whom we love dearly father that you call them unto yourself and that they do not deny the call to repent and turn to you Lord we celebrate your goodness we praise you for your grace toward us we confess Lord that we are so completely unworthy of such favor. Lord, we're so overwhelmed when we think about our iniquities, our failures, our sins, knowing, Lord, that we fall short. But, Lord, we are covered with the righteousness of Christ 
which has been credited to our account. And Lord, this is why we come before you in prayer to worship you, to proclaim your truth, to sing your praises, to be confronted by your word and to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that is why I come and pray to you this morning on behalf of our people. Lord, I pray that you bless this sermon this morning as you take us on a detour from Ephesians to look at Peter's letter to the church and what it means to suffer well. Lord, there are some in our congregation, perhaps all who are suffering in different ways, suffering with uh, children, suffering financially, suffering in health, suffering on their jobs, suffering in relationships with family members or with uh, loved ones. Lord, we pray that you minister to us this morning by your spirit, that you encourage the faithful, and that we may look to Christ, who ultimately suffered once for all for our sins, who suffered on our behalf, who suffered in our place, and who was not unfamiliar with our sufferings. Lord, bless your word this morning as it is preached and as it is heard. In Christ's name I pray, amen. And as I said this morning, we're going to take a detour and be obedient to the Spirit of the Lord. So we're going to look at uh, 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. And um, I preached through Peter twice. I did in 2019, I think the first time back in 2015. And Peter's book, he wrote two letters to the church. Peter was one of the big three. You had Peter, James, and John. And so, I don't have a slide with it. That's fine. Um, Because I changed it this morning. So, but uh, yeah, Peter's book is about suffering. Peter was one of the big three. You know, Peter, James, and John. And Peter is the author of this, this book. He is an apostle. And he is writing to these saints who are scattered. Uh, throughout the place in which he was living. If you look at the first verse of 1 Peter, we see the context of this passage and who he is speaking to before we look at the fourth chapter. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles, some translations say elect pilgrims, of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he is writing to the scattered church. He's writing to saints who are longing for their heavenly home. Believers are not only exiles, but we are God's elect exiles, elect pilgrims. We are his chosen people. So he is writing to the chosen people of God. Just as Israel was designated as God's chosen people, so are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter is writing primarily to Gentiles. And he's writing about the suffering that they are encountering as believers in the context in which they live. 
So looking in the fourth chapter here, I want to go in context back to chapter three and verse eight, and then we'll read up through uh, verse six of chapter four to get a full context of what Peter is saying as we get into our message this morning, suffering and holiness. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless for to you this. I'm sorry, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Excuse me for whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ as uh, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if if that should be God's will than for doing evil for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water baptism which corresponds to this now saved you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And now we get to our text. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, and this goes back to verse 18 of chapter 3, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. No longer for human passions. But for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies. Drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this they are surprised. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are. They might live in the spirit the way God does. So this message here is about suffering and holiness. 
How are we to live in the midst of suffering? How are we to be? I preached this message on April 23rd of 2017. And that was, uh, at that time, it was four years to the day that my father had uh, deceased. It was uh, April 23rd of 2013 when my father uh, died. And I preached this message uh, four years to the day after that, April 23rd of 2017 and that was a time of suffering for of course for me and my family I did his funeral I did the eulogy I prepared the funeral arrangements and all those things but you know my wife was with me I went down there to Tuskegee to take care of all that and that was a time of suffering at that at that time uh, it'll be 10 years in on April 23rd of this year uh, but at that time it was it was a time of suffering for me and for my family because uh, you know, my father passed suddenly. He died in his sleep. I talked to him the day before. It was Monday, April 23rd. I talked to him that evening because uh, he had dialysis early that day. And I told him I talked to him in the morning. And I called him to that Tuesday morning. And the nurse answered the phone uh, that was attending to him. So uh, that's how, how quick it happened. And that was a, a time of great suffering. But in that, I was preaching through First Peter during that time. And I found great comfort in the word of God and, and how God points us to himself in suffering. The thing about us as sinners is that often when we suffer, we, we go inward. We isolate ourselves. We cut people off. We try to grind it out, you know, try to take it upon ourselves, you know, upon our own shoulders. We uh, neglect to seek the Lord in those times and and we basically give in to idolatry because our, our suffering can become an idol. We begin to nurse it and, 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 and hold it so dear and so close to us, closer than we hold Christ. So that suffering can become an idol. Idols are not just objects and, and things. Idols, uh, ideas can be idols. Circumstances can become idols. We, 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 we do that when we make them ultimate things. And we could do that in our suffering. And what Peter is doing here is showing the believers that we suffer differently from the world. Believers and unbelievers suffer differently. Make no mistake about it. The unbeliever is sinful under suffering. And unbelievers increase in their sinfulness while they suffer. But the believer increases in holiness and sanctification during suffering. We don't suffer as unbelievers do. Unbelievers, when they suffer, they self-medicate. They turn to alcohol or they turn to drugs or they turn to sexual immorality and perversions. They turn to all kinds of sin to deal with their suffering. Why? Because they have no hope in this world. They turn inwardly and, 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 and become hermits and, and stay away from people and isolate themselves. And, and they, quote, suffer in silence as is it is something honorable about that. But it's not. You're suffering in self-idolatry and self-worship. That's the way that pagans suffer. But that is not suffering for the Christian. So what was Peter's, Peter's purpose for writing this letter? It was to encourage his readers to endure 
suffering and persecution by giving themselves totally to God. That is why he wrote this letter to the people. And what does God want to accomplish through Peter? God wants Peter to encourage the saints who live as pilgrims in this world. Remember, we are elect pilgrims. We are passing through. We are temporary residents. This earth is not our home. It is not our permanent place of abode. So Peter is encouraging us. God wants Peter to encourage us to bring glory to God despite suffering and persecution. So what does God want us to know in this passage? One is the sufferings of Christ. Who is his son and how they endow the believer. To endure sufferings for his sake. And to look forward to their final redemption. And what does God want us to do in this passage? He wants us to suffer and endure persecution in such a way that it serves as a witness to an unbelieving world. So I have two, I have, I think, two or three principles uh, from this passage. Number one principle is the call to be armed with the proper attitude. So look at verses one and two. Again, think about what you're suffering with or suffering through. I'm preaching to the preaching to myself, but I'm also preaching to the church here at TLC and those who are watching and those who will listen to it. Think about right now what you're suffering through. Whether it's mental, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether it's through em employment or whatever the case may be. Think about what you are suffering through. Not understanding your life and what it's about and what's going on and why. And look at the first two verses here. We're talking about the proper attitude. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So therefore, as I said, when it was reading, this goes back to verse 18 of chapter three, where Paul said Christ suffered once for sins. So who is he pointing back to Christ? It's pointing back to Christ. So first Peter four and one is the practical application of first Peter three and 18. So, well, how did Christ suffer in the flesh? He suffered in his humanity. Okay, Christ was truly man. Christ was fully man and fully God. He was truly man and truly God. He wasn't half man and half God. Christ was man in his humanity. He lived in the flesh. The Bible says in John, the first chapter, that we beheld his glory. Those who lived during Christ's time, they saw him in the flesh. They saw God in the flesh. Christ was in the flesh. He wasn't some spirit walking around with a halo on top of his head. No, he was a man. And as fully man, 
He suffered as man. He was fully man and he suffered as a man would. His life, including the cross, was one of vicarious suffering where he suffered in our place. He suffered as man. Isaiah 53 and 3, Isaiah said that Christ was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So to those of you, I mean, we've been, if you've been in this church long enough and have been listening, we preached about dear to Christ many times. But just as a reminder, Christ suffered on this earth. He endured sufferings. He was tempted in all points, as Scripture says, yet Christ did not sin as we do. But he did suffer in the flesh. We can never go to Christ in prayer and say, Lord, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand how I feel. You can say that to your husband or wife or your best friend or your family member, but you can't say that to the Lord. <laughs> Why? Because he suffered in the flesh. He lived an actual life. Now, since Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter calls believers to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. How does this look? First of all, there are parallels in this passage with Ephesians 6, 13 through 17, which is the whole armor of God that Paul talks about. The whole arm of God for warfare against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And Peter's call for his readers to arm themselves. So the armor that Paul preached consists of a helmet, a breastplate, a righteousness, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the shield of faith and prayer. But Peter prescribes arming yourselves with the mind of Christ. He says here, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So as believers, we arm ourselves by becoming imitators of Christ. Paul said in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of Christ. We imitate Christ. We strive to be like Christ. And the only means to do that is through the word of God. This is how we arm ourselves. We're called to think critically as believers. We're called to think doctrinally. We're called to think theologically. We're called to think with a biblical worldview. So for us to understand and take on the mind of God, mind of Christ doing suffering, we must be students of God's word. The Bible contains the mind of, 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 of Christ. The Bible contains the word of God. The Bible is sufficient. And we can arm ourselves with the mind of Christ by knowing God's word. What we learn from the mind, from the word of God about the mind of Christ. Paul talks about in, in uh, Philippians 3 verses, I'm sorry, Philippians 2 verses 3 through 5. We learn about Christ's sacrifice and Christ's humility. How Christ gave himself for us. Now, he says the same way of thinking, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It is a means to cease from sin. 
but it is also a means to not live any longer for human passions, but for the will of God, as he says at the end of verse 2. The suffering believer is done with sin. The suffering believer is not a slave to sin. Do you know that excessive worry is a sin? It's not that we're not going to have circumstances where we don't worry. If I go to the doctor tomorrow, or I go to the doctor next on March 27th, if I go to the doctor, or, or you know, when I had my colonoscopy a few months ago, and the results came back, and the doctor said, you, uh, we found some cancerous polyps, I would be worried. Because I don't want to have colon cancer. If I go get my PSAs checked, and they're high, I would be worried because my father had prostate cancer and both of my uncles, my, both of my father's brothers had prostate cancer. So it's, 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 it runs in the family. I will be worried. That's a worrying situation. But when Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not worry, he's not saying don't worry. He's in essence saying, don't let worry overtake you and overcome you. Which of you about worrying can add one cubit to his stature? In other words, which of you about worry can add one day to your life? That's a rhetorical question, a rhetorical proposition. You can't add to your life by worrying. Worrying doesn't solve anything. When you perpetuate in worry, it becomes sin because you're forsaking the Lord. You make worry an idol. You make the thing that you're worrying about an idol. That is not how Christians suffer. So he says put on the same way of thinking. That's what we do. Christ in the garden. The night before he was crucified. He prayed until his sweats became like drops of blood. Why? Because he was fully man and he knew the agony of what he was about to face. He was about to bear the wrath of God for our sins on the cross. But he said he did not let that cup of suffering pass him. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. In that garden, he was suffering in the flesh because of the agony of the cross, of the agony of what he was about to face the next day, going through three mock trials that night, being dragged, as the scripture says, from judgment hall to judgment hall, three trumped up false trials, people bearing false witness against them. It was an agonizing night for our Lord. And as, as fully man, he felt all of that. But he said, nevertheless. So when we talk about the same way of thinking, we're thinking about the selflessness of Christ, the humility of Christ. That's how it looks. So when Paul, I'm sorry, Peter talks about arming ourselves with the same way of thinking, that's what he is talking about. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So the fact that Jesus suffered in his flesh to destroy sin 
He did that so that we through victorious suffering might be able to cease from the dominating influence of sin. Christ suffered in the flesh yet he did not sin. Nor did he cease from sin because he never did sin. But we are not to use our suffering as an occasion to sin. But as an occasion to grow in personal holiness and bring glory to God. So what am I what question am I answering this morning? Why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? Why am I having to deal with this? Why me, Lord? You're hearing why. It is ultimately for God's glory. Suffering is never for our misery unless we make it that way. You make it that way by not pointing yourself to Christ and centering your sufferings in Christ who suffered in the flesh. Matthew Henry said this. He says, as Christ suffered in his human nature, you do the same according to your baptismal vow and profession by making your corrupt nature suffer by putting to death the body of sin by self-denial and mortification. Mortification means basically putting sin to death. For if you do thus suffer, you will be conformable to Christ in his death and resurrection and will cease from sin. Our suffering has a purpose. Whatever you're dealing with right now, Christian, God has a purpose for it. And that purpose is always his purpose, not yours. Some people like suffering because they like the attention that comes with it. Some people parade their sufferings because they love to get all the likes and the comments on Facebook. Some people put all their business on Facebook. That's like the worst place to put it. But some people do that. Why? Because they want the attention. They do. They're not trying to be like Christ. They want the uh, attention of the world. But that is not the purpose of our suffering. It is to bring Glory to God, and it is to grow from it, to learn from it, to grow in personal holiness. If we allow what we're suffering with to destroy us, it's not God's fault. Because we're sinners, sometimes we try to take on too much. We put too much on our plates. We try to be strong in every way. And what happens? We just break down, don't we? You say, Lord, I just can't take it. Well, of course we can't, but <laughs> we don't go to the Lord. Later on in this book, First Peter 5, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Let's take an honest assessment. I asked my wife this question this morning. For us. 
How often do we just cry out to God? Let's think about that. I was thinking about Hannah's prayer in First Samuel, the first chapter. You know, she was barren. Her husband's other wife had children and was mocking her because she, you know, her, her, her womb was not open. And Hannah, you know, she was praying and, and Eli, the high priest, you know, thought she was drunk because she, you know, like she was murmuring. But she was praying because she was barren and she wanted a child because she wanted a child. She wanted a baby and her husband's other wife was having all these babies. But she called out to God. That's what, her, her prayer is one of the greatest prayers in all of scripture. She prayed to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? The Lord opened up her womb. Not only did she have Samuel, but she had, I think, seven, seven kids total. But she went to God in her suffering. Although she was being mocked, she called out to God. So how often do we just call out to God in tears? Like the old Jews used to do. They did it in sackcloth and ashes. We don't, we don't put ourselves in sackcloth and ashes. But that, that, that's just a, a, a symbol of just laying it all out for God. Just going to God. Just calling out to him. Just crying out to him. Our problem is we internalize everything. When we have our high priest who is seated at the right hand of God who intercedes for us on our behalf, who begs us, who pleads us to come to him. That's what Peter is telling these believers. Christ suffered in the flesh, he ceased from sin, and that's what we do. Then he says in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, no longer for human passions is the result of arming yourselves with the mind of Christ. And that results in a believer uh, ceasing from sin. In our suffering, we no longer live to fulfill our human passions but we rather live for the will of God Matthew Henry said the death of Christ for the believer has secured the death of the believer to the world he would not rather live for the will of God the only way we can be dead to the world and pursue his will it's through identification with the death of Christ. So what Peter is saying here. Is that a suffering believer. Suffers differently from a suffering unbeliever. Believers do not live the rest of their time in the flesh. But we live to do God's will. Unbelievers on the other hand often use their suffering as I said earlier as a means to indulge in fleshly desires and we'll explore that more in the next principle but that's what they do right unbelievers they're 
suffering on their job. You know, they had a hard week of work. Friday, they get off work. As we say in, in, in our neighborhood, they go to the liquor store. You see them coming out, coming out the beer cooler at Mapco with a 12-pack or a, a case. You know, they're going in this weekend. I had a hard week of work. I deserve this alcohol. Or they go to the ABC store or the liquor store and, you know, buy fifths of this or fifths of that or, you know, buy some wine or whatever the case may be. They about to get lit. Because why? They suffered all week on their jobs and dealing with their bosses and, and hate their co-workers and they don't want to deal with their husband or their wife. So they go have a girl's night out and go get drunk. Or go out with the guys or just go out by yourself. That's how unbelievers deal with suffering. They indulge their flesh. But unbelievers, we don't have that, I mean, believers, we don't have that kind of mind. The focus of our suffering is the will of God. God is the focus of our suffering. It is not an occasion, it's not a well, I might as well type of mindset that as uh, we should have as believers. That is not how we do it. Because it leads to even more sin. We don't overcome the effects of a sinful world by doing more sin. Because that just does more harm to us. Principle number two here is that we arm ourselves with Christ's mind because of past indulgences. So this is verses three through six. For the time is past. I'm sorry, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of, some translations say dissipation or debauchery, and they malign you. Come on, man. Stop being a square. Stop being approved. That's what the world says, right? Peter tells his readers that they've spent enough time living like the pagans, unbelievers, in all kinds of sins. He's telling them in light of Christ's sufferings and death to sin, in light of the believers identifying with Christ's suffering, we do not live that way anymore. Our past life is a closed chapter, never to be revisited again. I'm going to say that one more time. Our past life is a closed chapter, never to be revisited again. It's a closed chapter. I can't keep looking back at my past life as an unbeliever and I can't keep looking back at past sufferings because you end up being held hostage by those things. You keep yourself in bondage. It reminds me of Romans 13, 12 through 14. Paul says this, 
The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reverie and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its desires. That's what Peter is saying here. In our suffering, we cease from sin. And Peter lists six sins here. It's not a complete list, but these are indicative of the, the pagan world of unbelief. And these are not characteristic of those who are born again, but of a person who is unregenerate. Again, we're talking about how we don't suffer as unbelievers do. We suffer as a witness to unbelievers. So let's look at these sins. Number one, he says, the ESV says uh, sensuality. Some translations say lewdness. It is excess of all kinds of evil. It is lack of personal self-restraint. It is shameless conduct. You know, we talked about the absence of shame in our culture. That's lewdness, debauchery. Well, people have no shame of committing, you know, yeah, I'm an old man. I'm only, I'm only 51, but I'm talking like an old man here. There was a time, young people, y'all just said this young people, because I know y'all are not like this now. Your generation is not. If a young child did something in front of an older person, they would say, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry, sir. They don't do that now. I never cursed in front of adults when I was a kid. I used profanity when I was a kid. I wasn't a saint. <laughs> but I never did in front of my relatives. My, I wouldn't even be here, number one. <laughs> like, seriously. Why? Because it was, it was shame in it. I respected the elderly. I respected, the old, I, I respected my old folks. These young, ki these young kids now, they don't have respect for the elderly or for authority there's no there's no shame man we see an older person walk we're, we're straighten up if we were doing something stupid or talking a certain way we we'll, we'll switch our language so quick and be respectful to them they don't do that now my grandma used to have this saying evil ain't got no shame that's debauchery. That's, that's the way pagans behave. Well, under suffering, we don't behave as if we have no shame. But you have some who do. They have shameless conduct. They lack personal restraint. It's like you're suffering and you go and just gorge on food and eat yourself till you're sick. That's what pagans do. That's not befitting for us as believers. You know how people binge eat when they're uh, suffering through different things? That's not how we suffer. We don't, we don't show lack of, of, of restraint or lack of self-control 
when we're suffering. That's what that's what lewdness is. It could be in any form. When, when you hear the word lewdness, most people think of a you know sexual nature, but that could be in any type of activity because it's a heart condition. It's a it's a heart issue. Are we showing lack of restraint in our emotions when we're suffering? Taking it out on everybody else and, and, and using your suffering. You don't know what I'm going through right now. That's not how we suffer as believers. That's how pagans suffer. And then the next one he says here is passions or, or lusts, which are depraved cravings. The power to indulge in every kind of evil. Hidden desires to do evil. Daydreaming about doing evil. Drunkenness, of course, intoxication that is habitual in nature. Bubbling up or overflowing uh, with, with wine or strong drink. That's a sin. You don't, in your suffering, you don't go to the bottle. You go to the Bible. It's a nice t-shirt slogan. It's a nice bumper sticker. When you're suffering, don't go to the bottle, go to the Bible. Can someone make that T-shirt and sell it? <laughs> but no, we don't. We don't use suffering as an occasion to get drunk. Because guess what? When you sober up, it's still gonna be there. But isn't that the lie that people believe? That's why people become alcoholics. Because they believe the lie that you can what? Drink your troubles away. They believe the lie. I need to get my mind off of this. That, that, that's, that's what they say. I've been around people like that. They need to get that mind off what they're dealing with so they go get drunk. That's how pagans suffer, not Christians. Reveries, wild partying, nightclubs, just all, all types of stuff. Indulging in whatever wickedness may be suggested some people do that to deal with their suffering going through a hard time hey let's go to Vegas and gamble do all the wild partying and stuff and that's doing damage to your soul but that's not what we as believers do we don't do that And then carousings, uh, which is like drinking parties. Same thing, excess in social drinking, gluttony, or excess in eating. Some translators call it carousing or banquetings, like a banquet. And then the last one is lawless idolatry. That means abominable or detestable idolatry, worshiping many gods other than the one true God. Worshiping creation rather than the creator. Idolatry that is approved in the culture. Worship which leads to evil rather than to good. Some people turn to paganism when they're suffering. They start reading crystals and, and going to uh, zodiac signs and horoscopes and all this other type of witchcraft. Instead of worshiping the one true God. If you're reading through 1 Samuel 5 today. Or sometime today. If you're having this a spoiler alert. You know the Philistines had captured the ark. 
uh, of the covenant back in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, they placed the ark next to their pagan god, Dagon. Or Dagon. D-A-G-O-N. So they placed the ark of the covenant, which represents God's presence in the same, in their, in their pagan temple among their pagan god, uh, Dagon. <laughs> the statue fell the first time and they erected it back up. And then the second time, the head and the arms fell off the statue and they put the statue back up. Then they took the ark and moved it to one city and that city was troubled. Then they moved it to another city and that city was troubled. What is the principle in that passage? That God's presence does not tolerate evil. That evil and good cannot coincide. That the worship of pagan gods and the worship of God are mutually exclusive. They cannot be the same thing. You can't mix the two practices. That's, that's one of the principles in 1 Samuel 5. God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, could not be in the presence of a pagan deity. So when we're suffering, we don't resort to idolatry. We don't sort, resort to self-worship. Where we go in within ourselves and, and withdraw to ourselves. Because that's a form of idolatry. You're not looking up to God. You're looking to yourself to solve your own problems. But the solution to our suffering is to look up to Christ, not to self and idolatry. And not to all these other pagan practices out there. To those sins, Peter tells his readers that the pagan world should be astonished and malign or insult those who don't participate in those sins with them. If you have friends who are unbelievers, which is nothing wrong with having. If you have friends who are unbelievers, you don't join them in their pagan way of suffering and think that you're being a friend to them because you're not. If you got a friend that's suffering and they're not a believer and they say, hey, let's go to this function where there's going to be rampant and open sin, you can't say, well, I'm going to be a good friend and go with them. No, you're not being a good friend. You, you being a good friend say, no, you don't need to do that. Look, let's, let's, let's seek the Lord. Witness the gospel to them. Show them how Christ suffered and, and, and how that suffering can inform them in their sufferings that they, that they come to him and be saved. But you don't, quote, be a good friend by participating with them in that sinful activity. You don't do that. So when believers, unbelievers see us, Peter said again in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. You know what? They'll probably pick with you and call you a square or whatever they call people now. Words change so much. But guess what? Your, your primary concern is serving the Lord. Now for the believer, our suffering exposes our desire to escape this reality or the reality of the suffering. Or it exposes the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel in our lives. 
So which one will it be? Would it be the desire to escape the reality of the suffering? Or to expose the sufficiency of Christ? We're not to use suffering as a means to sin. That's the big idea of this part. D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary writes of Peter's audience. He says the readers persistent refusal to participate in those social and religious activities produce irritation against misunderstanding of and opposition to them. The big idea is that the temper and behavior of the true Christian under suffering should seem very strange to unbelievers and ungodly people. The way that we respond to suffering should should seem totally strange and different to unbelievers around us. And they may even speak evil of us because of our Christian behavior, but so what? We're doing the will of God. How are we treating others close to us in our suffering? Are we treating them as pagans would treat each other? Was, are we treating them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Sometimes people, we we're honest, the worst of us can come out in our sufferings, right? If you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> Sometimes we let the worst of us come out. Now, you know, we circle back and apologize. Say, hey, forgive me for that. I was an idiot. <laughs> I was wrong. I was stupid. I was in the flesh. But if you do it and you're, you're, you're uh, indifferent about it, like you don't care, that's, a, that's problematic. We suffer differently from unbelievers. And our suffering is a witness to the unbelieving world. Especially if you have people around you who know what you're suffering through or suffering with. Whether it's co-workers or family members or loved ones, even your own spouse or your own child or your own parent or whatever the case may be. Your suffering should be a gospel witness to those close to you and also to the watching world and that's what Peter is saying here to the saints but why should we not worry about them look at verse 5 they were given account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead those who blaspheme you those who mock you those who ridicule you, they will be judged by the judge, the capital J judge. They will have to render an account for their blasphemous words because the son has been given all judgment. He will judge every man according to their deeds. So, Again, we're going to close here. I want to preach this message today 
to myself but also to you all because I felt a great burden to do it and I want to be obedient to God some of you listening or probably all of you are suffering with something are suffering through something know that the Lord is with you know that your Savior suffered in the flesh on your behalf yet he did not sin and he showed us how we are to suffer through the writing of the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit I want us all to endure our suffering to God's glory in a way that is pleasing to him I want to read this passage right quick as I close. Hebrews, the fourth chapter. I'm going to turn to that with me right quick. And we'll read this. First Peter four. The context of this, uh, the Jews in the desert did not enter into God's rest because of uh, they hardened their hearts. And Hebrews four and eleven says, "Let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience." They talked about the word of God being. Uh, Active living, powerful, sharpening to its sword. Get verse fourteen. This is a good verse to these are good verses to meditate on. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So who is our great high priest? Jesus Christ. Remember, the high priest was the one who went before God on the day of atonement. There was only one who did. It was the high priest. We have a high priest now in the heavens who is Christ. Look at what he says. He says, since we have this high priest, let us hold fast our confession. This means the perseverance, persevering in our Christian faith. Why? Because we have a high priest in the heavens. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ knows. We're going to do this like an elementary school class. Everybody repeat after me. Christ knows. One for the Father. Christ knows. One for the Son and one for the Holy Spirit. Christ knows. He knows. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every way or respect has been tempted as we are. 
Christ knows. Again, we can't say, Lord, you don't know how I'm feeling. Lord, you don't know what I'm going through. Lord, you don't know what it's like living in 2023. We can't say that to our Lord. Why? Because he was tempted in every way. It's the same temptations. It's just different methods. But it's the same temptation. Satan is tempting you to abandon your faith, to turn away from God, and to worship him. That's what he did with our first parents in the garden. Did God really say? Temptation is as old as man. Nothing new under the sun. There are different methods and devices, but it's the same old temptations. The temptation to idolatry, the temptation to self-worship, the temptation to go after the things of this world instead of going after God. All, the te- all of them are, are the same. Christ was tempted. Read Matthew, the fourth chapter. When he, after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted by Satan. If you be the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Why? Because he knew Christ was hungry. The Bible says he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and after that he was hungry. And so Satan tempts him and says, if you be the son of man, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus was tempted, as we are. Yet without sin. Christ did not sin. Though he was tempted in every respect, it means, and it says every respect on every way, that means in every area of personal life. But yet he remained sinless. Because remember, Christ lived in the flesh. He lived in the actual flesh. He was fully man. He experienced the perils of being man. But yet he did not sin. So in our temptations, Christ, Christians rather, we can be comforted. Why? Because we know in our sufferings, we can be comforted because we know that Christ himself suffered and that Christ himself was tempted. That gives us comfort. Nothing that entices us is foreign to the Lord. Lord, thank you. No suffering that we encounter is foreign to the Lord. There's no suffering that is foreign to him. None. Absolutely none. So he says, verse 16, Therefore, the ESV says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I know the King James, the New King James says, Let us come what? Boldly before the throne of grace does it say let us isolate ourselves does it say let us descend into self worship and self idolatry and self harm does it say let us take it out on other people what does it say do let us come boldly to what The throne of grace, the prayer room, the prayer throne, the mercy seat of God. Let us come boldly before him. Guess what, believers? We can come to God any time. 
If you can't sleep in the middle of the night because of something you're suffering from, go to the throne of grace. Lord, hear my prayer. Lord, I'm hurting. Lord, I'm discouraged. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, I'm tired of this. You come boldly before his throne. That you may obtain mercy and help. Man, if we don't go to God, if we don't go to God, that's where we receive our help from. Like Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and earth. He will not suffer your foot to be moved. He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleep. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is the shade upon my right hand. He shall preserve my soul forevermore. My help comes from the Lord. You go to the Lord in suffering. You cry out to him. You call out to him. And guess what? He will visit you. He will encourage you. He will provide for you. But we're so sinful that we forsake those great blessings that we have in Christ. Lord, help us. I want to encourage you this morning. Right now, whatever you're suffering from, go to the Lord. We're going to have a time of prayer. I'm going to pray. You pray to the Lord about whatever you're suffering through or suffering with. Call out to the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. You can keep this on the live. That's fine. They can do it too. Lord, many of us are here suffering, including myself. And Lord, the thing that we do most is what we should do the least, and that is not go to you. We try to grind it out. We try to be mavericks. We try to be self-sufficient. We try to be self-sustaining. We try to look into ourselves. And Lord, what does it do? It brings misery. It brings despair. It brings depression and anxiety and excessive worry. Lord, look upon those of us that are here this morning among our church family and those who are watching on Facebook. Lord, look upon all of us this morning as they pray to you, as they, as they call out to you this morning of things they're suffering from and suffering with. Lord, we thank you that your, your, your word testifies that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because Christ is able to identify with his people because of his experience as a human in the sufferings he endured while being tempted. Lord, we thank you that we can go to Christ as we go to him right now. Lord, we're blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places as we've been reading and preaching through in the book of Ephesians. Lord, help us to not forsake such blessings that we have in you. 
Help us, Father, to go to you, to look to you, to cry out to you. Your word tells us to cry aloud and spare not. And not to just do it one time, Lord, but to keep doing it, to keep going, to keep going before your throne. Help us, Father. Help us, Lord. Help us to get out of our own ways. <laughs> Help us, Lord, to, to get out of our own way. To not be given in to selfishness and self-centeredness. But to look to you, Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. Who made the heavens and earth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.